Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Saturday, December the 16th, 2023. We can't escape real crime. Yesterday, we did a show with uh, the Chicago-based duo, husband and wife team of Geneva Rose and Drew Pine. Uh, they have a new uh, TikTok-driven crime mystery. It's out on uh, audiobooks. It's not in textual form. Um, they came on the show. Many of you will be familiar with Geneva Rose. She's a best-selling uh, real crime writer, both fiction and nonfiction. And their new book, it's not a book, an audio book, Crime Time, is based on an experience they had when their upstairs apartment in Chicago was robbed and they happened to go up after it was robbed and found all sorts of drug paraphernalia. So it's based on a true story. Uh, and today we're also dealing with true crime and uh, another very innovative writer, Max Marshall, who has a, a major new book out, Amongst the Bros, a fraternity crime story which is based on real crime and involves a lot of uh, on-the-ground reporting. Max is talking to us from New York. He's normally based in, Ox in Austin, Texas. So, Max, among the bros, how did you get involved in this story? It's an astonishing story. Sure. So I was the same age as basically all the guys in the book. I was in college from 2012 to 2016. And I was in a college fraternity and in sort of Greek life, I saw a lot of Xanax flying around, um, both as sort of like a weak night anxiety drug, but more as the sort of really major party drug. Was it literally flying, Max, or past? Well, you know, at the there was a point in the book where a guy was being chased by the SWAT team with a bag full of uh, Xanax, and he thought he would get away with it by throwing it off the roof but didn't realize that he had left the Xanax uh, Ziploc <laughs> open. And so when he threw it, it sort of exploded like a, a ball of skeet. And it, it did fly, um, you know, all Animal over. Farm. Exactly. Uh, not Animal Farm. That was an, an era. Animal yeah. House. Anything yes. but Animal Farm, right? Exactly. But, uh, you know, there's some uh, a quote that people like to say about fraternity life now is that it makes Animal House look like a Pixar movie. Um, things have definitely gone a lot crazier since the 70s. Yeah, and actually, I, I would I looked up Animal House for um, uh, before we did this, and actually, even it's it looks like a, a Pixar movie now in terms of its its marketing, but it's very definitely. Sweet. Yeah, I mean, yeah, look at that cartoon. It's yeah, it's very sweet. Um, but all that's to say is um, when I became an investigative journalist after school and was looking kind of to see just how far the Sanex problem went, I did the very uh, in depth investigative journalist thing of googling. Xanax bust fraternity. And the first result was this article about a group of guys at the College of Charleston in South Carolina. And they'd been caught with, I, I think the police report said it was like, I don't know, a dozen pounds of weed, a few pounds of cocaine, an assault rifle with a grenade launcher, and 44,000 Xanax pills. Just, just another day on, a, on an American campus, right? Exactly. But then oh, I felt- Just to be clear, you, you were an undergraduate. You may have been- uh, in a, in a, a sorority um, fraternity, yeah. Uh, whoops, uh, for a fraternity. Yeah. But um, you were at Columbia. It's rather different from a place like College of Charleston, isn't it? It is. Although you know, the year before I got there, there was an FBI drug bust in the fraternities called Operation Ivy League, and certainly I I saw 
a decent amount of drug dealing in my fraternity. But even more so, I saw it, you know, I grew up in the South. I grew up in Texas, if you count that as the South. But uh, all of my friends joined fraternities around the South, and I was seeing a lot of Xanax uh, figuratively flying around. All these Ma Max, do you think, I, I got kids, and I, I was actually thrilled that neither of them chose to join fraternities or, or, yeah. or, or sororities. Do you think one of the reasons, and this might raise a red flag for parents, is when kids decide to join these clubs, it's for drug reasons? Or is this just a an unintended consequence of joining these groups? I mean, I will say, you know, the people talk about hazing as sort of the worst thing that happens in fraternities, but ultimately hazing kills about one student a year in the United States, which is still a tragedy, but it's, you know, one student, whereas drug overdoses and even more so uh, accidents involving, you know, just an unbelievable amount of alcohol, kids falling off roofs, kids getting in car accidents, kids getting alcohol poisoning, kills many, many more students. But I wouldn't say drugs are the reason people join. I think it's sort of the way to think about fraternities in the U.S. is it's sort of a, a drinking club for the elite. You know, like it's people don't really know the extent to which the sort of American upper crust congregates in these in Greek life. Something like 75 percent of every dollar given to universities comes from Greek life alumni. That gives you a sense of just how much wealth is running through this. I, I like that. I may even use that as a title for this thing. Drinking yeah. club for the elite. Um, yeah. yeah and really tell is. us then, I mean, when, when you think of College of Charleston, of course, one thinks of the, the city of Charleston, which was one of the centers of the Civil War, a plantation city. How, how much of all this is bound up, do you think, in race, particularly the, the kinds of fraternities at a college like uh, College of Charleston? Sure. So, I mean, the two main fraternities in this drug ring were Kappa Alpha Order and SAE. In both K and SAE were founded in the Deep South at the end of the Civil War, sort of an, as like an explicit reaction to we lost the Civil War. What are we going to do? How do we keep this way of life alive? And KA, one of the two fraternities, their spiritual founder, they call him, is Robert E. Lee. Um, up until a few years ago, they had something called the Old South Ball, where people would dress in Civil War reenactment, sort of you know, the grays of being a Civil War soldier mm -hmm. and the women would wear like plantation uh, gowns. Um, I'm sure that thrilled the the African-Americans on campus. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's definitely been sort of this like very intense flashpoint on a lot of schools. And K is not, you know, there's a KA at Stanford. There's a KA at Princeton. It's this weird thing. And then you go into the sort so of... KA is one of the national... Exactly. Yeah. And so is SAE is even bigger. SAE has, you know, hundreds of chapters. So tell uh, us a little bit more about the College of Charleston. How does it break down racially between whites and blacks? When you look at the um, the advertising, it looks terribly, terribly PC, but I, I'm sure it isn't. Yeah. I mean, it's it's very interesting because there's the sort of in-state kids and there's the out-of-state kids. It's a it's a municipal college, so you can get in-state tuition. And so there's very kind of middle class kids from small South Carolina towns, but it's also, it was named the most beautiful campus in America. And, you know, Charleston was, has often been named the most beautiful city in America. And the sort of uh, very wealthy kids from Greenwich, Connecticut, Westchester, sort of the wealthy Northeastern suburbs have found this school. Some of them call it Camp Charleston. Some of them call it uh, boarding they're, school. They're, but they're the stupid ones. The smart ones in their families go to Princeton and Yale and Columbia, right? Well, I, you know, I wouldn't say stupid, but yeah, like certainly. Or the ones who at least don't it's, take it's, college very seriously, don't take yeah. their studies very seriously. 
it, it there's a reason people call it camp charleston it has that like summer camp feeling you know one kid from the northeast told me it's like boarding school without the nerds um and so so yeah i mean they come down certainly looking to have a good time you can go out six or seven nights a week there um king street is sort of like Bar bourbon street in new orleans it's this crazy street with just like bars and bachelorette parties and sort of all the trouble you could ever want to get into and then there's the beach it's you know it's it's a coastal town and so it really is this sort of like jewel box sort of uh paradise well one thinks of camp charleston one might think of charleston's being slightly camp i'm guessing it's a fairly straight cultural and sexual environment is it yeah i mean there's a there's a lot of people hooking up but i would say it's it's pretty hetero um although you know like any school there's different pockets but yeah the greek life i think one thing that really draws a lot of guys there is it's a three to one girl to guy ratio it's a lot of beautiful southern women and wealthy guys from the northeast and that's a, a potent combination we're speaking with max marshall young very talented american journalist first new uh, first book among the bros it's a sensation it's got great reviews all over the world um max so We've set the scene, this elite school, white primarily school in Charleston, one of the, the pearls, if that's the right word, of the Civil War. Sure. And then you read about this story of Xanax. What happened and, and, and what happened when you went down there? Sure. So, like I said, the police report said they had found 44,000 Xanax pills. So I thought this would be maybe, you know, a magazine piece or something. I started talking to a few of the defense lawyers involved. All these kids hired the best defense lawyers in the South, as you can imagine. Yeah. And, and one of them sort of let it slip that actually the police had found three and a half million pills or close to that and um, never publicized it. And so even that alone, you're looking at a much, much bigger. What do you mean? Let it slip publicly or privately? So basically they never publicized it. Um, they didn't necessarily have to. Part of it was because of a cooperation agreement that uh, one of the sort of boys who had decided to flip on a bunch of others. I, I guess one of the terms of the agreement is we won't publicize that we found millions of pills. Um, but they had the sort of classic drugs on the table. You know, if you've ever watched The Wire, these police shows where they pile drugs and money and guns on these tables and say, look at everything we found. And it seemed like a lot. But ultimately, there were millions of pills missing. Um, and so that was the first thing that kind of keyed me into this being a bigger story. Then I found out that these fraternities had had members die in the past four years and alumni die of overdoses, kids falling off roofs, like we were talking about. Um, and then you just get this sense of this drug ring. Actually, it wasn't just the College of Charleston. They were actually working at campuses all over the deep south. And they were. So oh, this was a, a major criminal ring of, of drug dealers where were they getting these drugs from so they were using the dark web and so the dark web was a probably the biggest change that's happened to college drug dealing since you know cocaine hit the scene in the late 70s um it used to be if you wanted to deal drugs on a college campus you'd have to go to the other side of the tracks you know and find someone connected to a cartel yeah um but now with the dark web, you don't have to leave the safety of campus Wi-Fi and you can just get stuff shipped to your dorm room. And so what these guys were doing is they were getting Alprazolam powder shipped from China via the dark web and go through Canada. A guy in Quebec would basically hide the powder in printer cartridges, ship it down to Charleston. These guys would have beach houses that they would rent a month at a time. 
and they had an industrial pill press that made their own Xanax pills and they could make hundreds of thousands a month. So they would, you know, churn out these pills. They would package them using heat sealers. They'd like empty out Skittles bags and things, put the pills in and reseal them. And then they would either ship them out again in the dark web all over the US or they would sort of funnel it through the fraternity system where these guys would use fraternity pledges, which is sort of the like when you're a freshman, uh, it's, you know, hazing. You're basically your servant for a year. And these pledges would take it around the South. So a, was there? So this sounds like a major criminal operation. Was there a, a single drug lord at the heart of it, a, a genius, a, an organizational fella? I'm so, assuming they're all men. They, they, they were. I mean, it was there were people described it to me as less of an organized ring and more like I don't know. I don't know if you have this in the UK, but like Cutco or Mary Kay Herbalife, a multi-level marketing. Yeah, MLM. What's it called? MLM. Yeah, MLM. Yeah, yeah, an MLM scheme where it's you know there you you almost get the kit and then you're sort of self-starting and you and then. You know, you're trying to basically sell to someone. Uh, and in a sense, it's a sort of Ponzi scheme because exactly. someone's going to get caught in the end. Exactly. And it's in the margins get crazy. So like, you know, to if you're buying pills on the sort of wholesale industrial scale, it might come out to five or 10 cents a pill. And then you might sell them 10,000 pills a time at 50 cents to a dollar per pill. But once you get to these wealthy kids on campuses who don't know any better, they might buy a single pill for five to ten dollars. And so, you know, you're, you're starting at 10 cents a pill and ending up at a $10 a pill. That's, you know, the most extreme, but like the margins can be quite nice. Um, uh, and just to be clear here, was the college, so this frat at the College of Charleston, was this the center of this operation or was it just one piece of it? So the city of Charleston was the central node of this organization. I would talk to guys at other colleges and they go, oh yeah, we all know that like this stuff comes from Charleston. It comes from these few fraternities, but there was a group of guys in Charleston, some were in college, some were not, they're all college aged who were basically doing this. And so the guys in the beach houses were sort of one part. And then the guys in the fraternity were sort of the next level where it started to actually be distributed. And then you went down there to investigate and yep. you, the, the book is cool and it's a great title. Uh, and I'm sure in, in a sense, it was inspired by Among the Thugs, Bill Buford's brilliant book on football hooliganism. Yours is called Among the Bros. Yeah, that's um, the absolute inspiration. I love that book. Um, how did you in, in, uh, infiltrate these people? Did they know you were a journalist? How did it work? They did. I mean, so I remember before I, I left to do the reporting, um, I was telling an editor, you know, the fraternity bubble is really hard to infiltrate. Um, it's a very close system. There's a lot of secrecy. And if I do this, I think I need contacts. And the guy was saying, oh, yeah, contacts are important for a journalist. You know, get a list of names. I was like, no, no, I need I need contacts. So I look less like a, a New York writer and more like yeah. just one of the guys. Um, but ultimately, I contact think the lenses rather than. Criminal exactly. Content. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, but all that's to say is, I think the fact that I came from the South, um, I was in a fraternity, most of my friends were in fraternities, my parents were in Greek life. Um, I didn't have a LinkedIn before I made this, but I made one with all, you know, all my fraternity friends. And then I realized 
looking at the guys in this ring that I had mutual connections in common. It kind of shows you how this network works and how, you know, like we we're talking about the drinking club for the elite, it really does pay dividends after school. Um, but a lot of it, I mean, took a lot of earning trust, right? Like I did read thousands of police files and kind of for the first six months, I got stonewalled a lot because I didn't know the story well enough. But once I sort of, the ball started to roll and people started to hand off, oh, you know, Max has talked to this person, that person, it sort of started to work. But the big break was when the main character in the book, Mikey Schmidt, called me from a black market cell phone that he had smuggled into his prison cell and told me he wanted to talk. And that's kind of when everything really took off. We are speaking with Max Marshall, who has a major new book out amongst, among, it's not amongst, among the bros. He explained to me that only the Brits use amongst. The Americans say among the bros, a fraternity crime story, a real life crime story, a wonderful book, and it's getting great reaction. Uh, I'm going to take a short break, remind everyone that this high quality content and writers are brought to you by Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. Going to run a short feature on Liberties, and then we'll be back with Max Marshall to talk more about Among the Bros and his breakthrough and the central figure in his true crime narrative. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties, it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We have the honor of talking with Max Marshall, young journalist, writer, who has a major new book out, Among the Bros, a fraternity crime story. In the first half of the show, he was telling us about how he began to infiltrate uh, the bros uh, at the College of Charleston, this fraternity group who were involved in the smudging, smuggling and resale of, of, of a huge amount of Xanax uh, drugs, illegal drugs. Max, um, so before the break, you were telling me about this call you got. How did that change everything? Yeah, I mean, so the challenge with any long form nonfiction is, you know, I think a lot of writers will give this sort of fake omniscient God's eye view as if they were there for everything. But ultimately, all you really have when you're doing a story like this is either things that are in documents. So that's anything from police files to, you know, texts that you pull up, photos, whatever that is, and then people's memories. So you can't really tell the story unless, of course, you're talking to people who are involved in it. And the big break was talking to Mikey Schmidt, who's the, like I said, the, the main sort of protagonist in the book um, from his prison cell. I didn't realize the sort of smuggling economy in jails, but um, he had a, he had multiple cell phones. He doesn't anymore, but for a time he had a cell phone and, you know, he got caught smoking weed. And once you have cell phones in prison, you can also have Venmo and Cash App. And so there's this whole sort of secondary economy in prisons based around these cell phones. But it took a long time to earn his trust, but ultimately he sort of started to tell his story from being a freshman pledge in KA to moving back to Atlanta after dropping out, working in valet and sort of the Atlanta nightlife. And then a year later, um, you know, bringing cartel quality cocaine from Mexico via Atlanta to fraternity houses around the Southeast. 
and picking up this Xanax coming from China, from Charleston and bringing that to fraternity houses. Um, and then ultimately getting betrayed by his best friend in the fraternity who wore a wire on him. How, how, how should we be certain that you trust this guy? I mean, he's in prison. Why wouldn't he just be making all this up to glamorize himself to perhaps the easiest boredom of jail? I Definitely. I mean, so that's, that's really why secondary sources and corroboration are so important. Because, yeah, I mean, I did have a lot of skepticism because, yeah, I mean, sort of a captive audience in both directions. Right. He's he's there in his cell. And like you said, there's profound boredom. And then for for me, I have him as a captive sort of speaker where I can you know reach him any time or I could when he's still out of phone. And so that's really where you have to sort of dig up. And it was lucky, I guess, that there were, you know, these really thousands of pages of DEA files, police files. Um, so that's a lot of it. And then a lot of it was I did something like 190 interviews with something like 125 sources. So a lot of it is just like, you know, those interviews, they don't even show up as quotes often in the book, but sort of the scaffolding. Did you whole. record the interviews? Did you film them? I read I recorded them just with sound. I didn't film them. And what did you tell Mikey Schmidt? Uh, did you tell him you're writing a book, an article or you were just curious? So it started as writing an article. And then when it became a book, I told him it was going to be a book. And that's really actually when he opened up more because, I mean, this story just has so many spinning plates and there's, it would be very, very difficult to fit really anything of substance into a 10,000 word piece. But once it became a book and we could really delve into everything, um, that's when he, he really opened Has he up. read it? Did you send him a copy? He, it was hard to get one into prison, but he did eventually get it. And, and what was his response? I mean, he liked it. I, I think, you know, there was a pain when his version of the story was sort of silenced while everyone else was basically informing on him. So all these guys in the yeah. crime ring, they all flipped and they all sort of told their version and they're not in jail and he is. And so I do think there was some catharsis and, you know, the quotes that I put from him, him getting to kind of tell his story. Um, I think there's also the sort of uh, very 21st century excitement of now all these documentary companies and, uh, you know, Sony is optioned the book. And so I think, you know, that's yeah. probably. And now, now you're coming out with a podcast which on, on all this, which should be really good. I mean, just judging from the Trump trial, for example, it seems as if one of this or, or the, uh, the Sam Bankman Freed trial, one of the strategies of criminal justice is to get uh the the secondary is to flip on the the, the the figure who at least the police or the judiciary believe is the, the main character is there some truth to that was was Mike yeah. schmidt the kingpin and they just turned everyone on to him so there's something called the the whitey bulger theory in in criminology which is basically it's a capture hypothesis and it's if the sort of person at the top of a criminal hierarchy becomes an informant who are they informing on, right? So it's, it's, and then it becomes like, at what point, Whitey Bulger was this big time Boston yeah. crime lord. Whose and, brother was a, a very powerful politician. Yeah, and, and he was informing to the FBI, but basically that, you know, he was using the FBI to put away his rivals or people under him that he was afraid were sort of getting sort of the, the stock was getting too high and he could cut it off by basically saying, FBI, go get him. Um, and I think there's an argument that that's what happened here as well. Um, 
the the boy who who had gotten caught with the closer to the millions of pills um he never went to prison whereas mikey did but i think ultimately what the reason mikey's in jail is a fraternity guy can inform on another fraternity guy without really much risk of you know his safety um he might get sued or something but these guys are not necessarily that prone to extreme violence they might beat each other up but mikey who is the, the the cocaine source he couldn't really tell you know oh here's the name of my cartel link in atlanta because that's a that's a death sentence and so i think that that was a lot of it as well and was there large amounts of money when mikey was running this thing was he i mean how much money was he bringing in so i mean you know mikey was buying sports cars he got a bmw and a porsche and he had an apartment in atlanta and an apartment in charleston and there's stories of him you know spending fifty thousand dollars at a strip club in a night or something um but yeah ultimately you know there was enough money that um at least in the police files there's evidence that these guys were laundering it through the fraternity system so they would you know have to enter it in the fraternity books as some sort of donation or something and then they could they could launder it and then there's another guy in the the ring that uh, had the first ever Bitcoin seized by the DEA in American history. And so, um, and that guy, Eric Hughes, he was the one who was sort of uh, working a lot of the pill press on, on those beach houses. Um, he's, if he still has that Bitcoin and the DEA never seized it, he would be a, a millionaire many times over. One of the things I love about the book, Max, it's ex extremely well written, but the cover is classic. And I I've got the book in front of me. The, the jacket photograph is borrowed from a, an image from 1857. It looks like a young white Southern male in the Civil War, that sort of sad, heroic, supposedly mock heroic look. D does the book bring up the age old history of the South and of um, of this white elite uh, doing damage one way or the other to America? Definitely. I mean, you know, I, I certainly get into the history of K.A., which is sort of a way to tell the history of the South. Um, if you look at the sort of documentation from the K.A., K, especially from the 1920s. And, the and this is the fraternity that you focus on. Yes, the Kappa Alpha Order. This is the one where Robert E. Lee is their spiritual founder. Um, the way they talked about themselves in the 1910s and 20s was basically um, there's the KKK, which is sort of the violent arm of the project of sort of the lost cause of Southern masculinity. And then there's KA, which is sort of the, the soft power way of doing this, which is basically teaching the next generation of elite men um, about what the Civil War was really about, which in you know that sort of uh, iconography is, it was about gentility, it was about protecting womenhood, it was about this sort of uh, neo-Arthurian myth of chivalry, and it's it's what we in America yeah call the you know the myth of the lost cause, and you know for generations and generations this is what Ka has taught boys, which is basically you know they call um robert e lee sort of the last perfect gentleman they call him like the the sort of white knight of uh this sort of christian mythology and yeah i mean it's powerful stuff and it, it, it kind of is what you learn growing up in the south a little bit so did you discover in a way when you research these bros these drug dealing bros that 
the spirit of the South, Robert E. Lee, K.A., was all still alive, or is it different now? I mean, it all has this sort of ironic bent now. I mean, so, you know, there's a book called The Varlet that students are supposed to memorize when they join K.A., and it teaches all this stuff about, you know, um, there's a section on Charlemagne. Uh, there's obviously a lot about Robert E. Lee, and it's sort of basically saying that you are a continuation of this chivalric code that started um, in Arthurian times and continued, you know, it sort of had its last big flourish in the South during the Civil War. And now you're sort of keeping those embers alive. Um, but students have a very ironic relationship with it now where uh, they might use it as a, a way of hazing. They'll say, if you don't memorize the Greek alphabet, you're going to have to swallow dip spit and cat food or, um, you know, <laughs> there's a there's like this initiation ceremony at the end where everyone wears robes and is blindfolded and there's a sword and you drink from a chalice and it's supposedly this sort of um you know knights templar sort of thing but the boys will turn on the music from the halo soundtrack and it's all but it, it does sort of seep into your way of seeing things like there were students who i i've heard this on college campuses and these guys would say it too they before you shotgun a beer you say one, two, three, Robert E. Lee, three, two, one, South should have won. We've done many shows on American universities. It's always occurred to me that they somehow capture all the contradictions, paradoxes, injustices of yeah. America. I mean, as we're talking about this, of course, there's an equal scandal at Harvard. Apparently, 17% fewer people are applying because of all the different debate, shall we say, to use a euphemism on campus about Israel and Palestine, Gaza Strip. We've had lots of stories recently about college admissions cheating. What does your book, Among the Bros, tell us about the state of American universities? I'm curious also how the College of Charleston actually responded to the book. They didn't sue you? Sure. So I do think something I've often thought about our discourse around college campuses is it's a very sort of elite focused discourse. It's often the death of the humanities or it's campus protest in the Ivy league, like you're discussing now. Um, whereas for a lot of students, I would say almost the majority of students, especially at big state schools, which are, you know, many, many times bigger than a school like Harvard. Um, it's about partying. And then it's about finding a job after your four year party. And, you know, you can go to whether it's Michigan State or Miami or any coast and anywhere in between. It's about college football and it's about tailgating. It's about darties, day parties. It's about Greek life. It's about getting your fake ID and going out on the town. And it is sort of this myth that also runs through, uh, you know, American movies about college. You mentioned Animal House, but, you know, old school it sort of recurs every generation. There's a new movie about this stuff. And I do think when you talk to people abroad, this is how they know American universities too. Like whenever I'm abroad, someone will be like, do you guys really play beer pong or do you really drink out of red cups and do keg, keg stands? I'll say, yes, absolutely. But it's actually much crazier than that as well. And so I think this book is, you know, the culture wars were also hitting Charleston at the time. Uh, they hired as their president um, in, I want to say it was 2013, uh, a very connected South Carolina politician who um, was, he owned a Confederate memorabilia store. 
Um, and the students were very upset by this. This was around the time of the Mother Emanuel shootings and Michael Slager. And so, you know, there was all sorts of racial tension and these things do show up at schools. I'm not saying it's just a party, but I do think um, for as much sort of, you know, uh, chin stroking as there is about the death of the, the English major, um, if you go to a lot of schools, what really people are worried about is, you know, where's the party at? Yeah, it's interesting. We did a show last, uh, actually a couple of years ago with a, an African-American scholar, Devarian Baldwin, on how universities are plundering our cities, the sort of universities as the new colonialist. Is there some truth about that in Charleston? Did you find that, that the universities are kind of taking over the rest of the urban space? And uh, American cities, of course, are in crisis. And perhaps in an odd way, the criminality of the college and the criminality of the city become confused in your narrative. Yeah, I mean, I certainly saw that at Columbia where I went to school. I mean, I think Columbia is the largest private landowner in New York, which is a pretty unbelievable thing. And they don't pay taxes on on it thanks to some, you know, 200-year-old sort of handshake. But yeah, I would say it in Charleston, it you do see it really spill over because it's right in the middle of downtown and there are all these sort of million-dollar homes and uh, there are students with trust funds or their parents are buying them these homes. You'll see students who live in million dollar houses next to campus that their parents bought for them. And because of that, the sort of party spills out on the streets. And then certainly, as you said, the sort of drug dealing certainly spills out into the streets. And you can go to these bars on King Street and there are tourists, there are bachelor and bachelorette parties, there are conventioners in town for work. And then there are these fraternity guys who are both buying and selling you know, uh, yeah, and I, I'm guessing uh, that the locals buying and selling drugs, 17 year old kids on the street in Charleston, would be treated quite differently by the criminal justice system than a fellow like Mikey Schmidt. Yeah, and you know, and Mikey did do prison time, but yeah, most of the guys. But he were... was the kingpin. The others didn't. Yeah, it, well, some of the kingpins did get away, and that's kind of my point. Is yeah, Mikey is. He at least paid some consequences. Basically, everyone else in the book did not. And, you know, one of the fraternities, KA, left campus for four years, but they came back in 2020 and SAE never left. So that does give you a sense of the sort of lack of consequences for a lot of these guys. But, yeah, you're absolutely right that if you go to West Ashley on the other side of the river, um, somebody could get caught with, you know, a dime bag of, of Coke or, you know, 100 Xanax pills and be looking at years in prison. Uh, Max, you, you mentioned that the book, or at least the title, was inspired in part by Bill Buford's brilliant book, Among the Thugs, which was a book about English football hooliganism. Some critics, it's, it's a great book. Yeah. I mean, some critics have suggested it glamorized football hooliganism. Were you ever concerned in this book uh, among the bros that you were glamorizing the bros, that they're best just left alone, not written about? Yeah, I mean, what's, you know, there's the famous Truffaut quote, uh, there's no such thing as an anti-war movie. And I think you also see this in Wall Street movies. Uh, you know, people will tell Oliver Stone, like, you're the reason I went into bonds after they see Gordon Gecko say greed is good. And I even saw this in the Charleston itself, you know, guys who love The Wire, guys who love Wolf of Wall Street, basically thinking it's a how-to manual. And I am aware that telling a crime story like this, especially I didn't sort of hold the reader's hands and tell them, you know, if I when I depict a scene of a SAE being waterboarded, 
I don't then come in and say, and it is bad to waterboard people. Um, and so I'm aware that some people might draw the conclusion of like, oh, these guys are sick, um, sick meaning good. Uh, certainly other would say these guys are sick in a different way. Um, but it's it's a risk you take when you tell stories that you're not, you know, I, I don't like the eat your vegetables version of a story of sort of like, oh, here comes the message. And then you, you know, force feed it. But um, ultimately, no, I don't think these guys are better left alone because like you said, we're talking about the American elite. You're talking about uh, all, every president since 1825, um, or four president, all but four presidents since 1825, over 80% of Fortune 500 executives, most Supreme Court justices, they all come from this system. And so to me, I was sort of like, okay, well, I'm going to hold a mirror up to this system. And if the mirror hope happens to be smeared with cocaine, so be it. That's, that's the mirror. Rotten system, very well treated by Max Marshall and among the bros. Um, Max, finally, we're asking everyone this. Your book doesn't really deal much with tech, although you talk about the dark web. We actually had Jamie Bartlett. He's an old friend. He's been on the show a couple of times. He authored a book called The Dark Web. What's your sense of, uh, maybe not so much in your narrative, but the future in terms of AI? What big challenge in America in the 2020s or in the world would you like AI to address? Maybe the elitism that you write about in Among the Bros? Yeah, I mean, something I was thinking about just in terms of this book is um, access to legal help. I mean, I do think AI could help um, those who can't afford the sort of white shoe best lawyers to sort of decipher very complex legal documents that are made to obfuscate and sort of uh, railroad people into awful situations. I've I I've used uh, AI to sort of look at legal documents before, and it's already pretty exceptional. At sort of picking apart an NDA or really any contract. And so hopefully that sort of levels the playing field a little bit for those trying to navigate our uh, the Kafkaesque uh, criminal justice system.